Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, the Catechism has made it very clear that the ascension of Christ is a good thing. He's in the presence of God. He advocates for us. Uh, we are ones who have our glorified flesh in heaven, uh, knowing that we are those who truly are fit to dwell in the presence of God. And he sends his Spirit uniting us to him. And so this is encouraging, but the Catechism wants us to understand that there's something more to this that we have to comprehend. As the Apostles' Creed uh, builds on him ascending into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. And so the Catechism wants us to understand this is important that Christ is in heaven. And so why is it so important that Christ is on the right hand of God? How do we know ultimately as Christ is seated in the right hand of God that this is a good thing, that our rest, our life is ultimately secured in him? And so as we seek to answer this, we'll see first that he is seated in heaven, secondly that he rules us, and third that ultimately he makes everything right. And so let's begin with question and answer 50, that he is seated in heaven. And so, as I mentioned, the Apostles' Creed is dealing with the issue of he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. Now, obviously, as we know, the Apostles' Creed was not written uh, by the Apostles, but it's actually a summation of what the Apostles believed. Uh, so if you want to know a basic confession of the Christian life, uh, some people have even used this in terms of evangelism, where people say, what do you believe? And they just go through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so it's actually quite helpful uh, to have these statements. And that's what the Catechism is walking us through. Now in terms of, of Christ being seated on the right hand of the Father, the Catechism is telling us that Christ is here in absolute authority over his church. Uh, this is very encouraging. Uh, we can think of churches that experience persecution. We can read about this in church history. We can read about it in the news and our today uh, context. Uh, we can hear of things that happen in our own lives where people may mock us for what we believe. Uh, I'd argue persecution in America is quite light uh, in comparison to what other people have endured in their Christian life. But the place where we want our mind to go in the midst of this is to be assured that Christ is still ruling over the church. And we have to be assured of that. We also know that it's the Father who governs all things through Christ. So we're reminded of how the Trinity works in time, which we'll get into also with uh, the end of Psalm 110 and verse 7 with the drinking from the brook, of seeing how you know, the Father is the one who sends Christ. Christ does the work of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And how we see the persons in the Trinity functioning in time. And so the Catechism reminds us that the Father rules through the Son, 
who is seated over his church as the ultimate king. Again, Matthew 28, we think of Christ assuring us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so we might be left then, why is this such a, a good thing? This is where I thought Psalm 110 is such a helpful psalm for us to walk through. Probably a familiar psalm for many of us, uh, but nevertheless, it's a very significant psalm. Because as we look at this psalm, it really is a celebration of Christ's kingship. So if you take Psalm 10, some of the echoes to Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 2, you have the nations conspiring, trying to rise up against the Lord. Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at them. You know, the, the nations think they're great, but they're nothing. Psalm 110 is now giving us another perspective that's, that's complementary to Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is seeing the nations kind of on this earth like busy little ants, uh, trying to rise up against God, but God seated in heaven and the assurance of who he ultimately is, a, a celebration of Christ's kingship and God's rule over all. And so what do we have here in Psalm 10, 110? We have, uh, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So think about this statement, uh, this declaration, this call for him to sit on the right hand. Now, we, we know of this as being the right-hand man. If you look in Scripture, if you're familiar with the tribe of Benjamin, uh, that means uh, son of my right hand or you know, an exalted son basically is what it means. The, the irony is that they fight left-handed. It's one of the things that shows us that God truly has a sense of humor. And so the right-hand man is testifying to his significance. Uh, this is why uh, Jacob names Benjamin, you know, the this, this son of my right hand, the son of favor, the son of significance. Joseph, may he add again, may he add another. So Joseph being a prayer, Benjamin being the second favored son, this important son. So when we have Christ seated on the right hand of the Father, this isn't just Christ entering into an exalted heavenly state. Now that's obviously part of it, and that's significant. But the significance here is not that Christ just enters into an exalted state and the Father tolerates him. You know, here's that pesky kid again. You know, we might think something along those lines. It's not how the Father is presenting this in Psalm 110. That the Father is very much proud of his Son. Uh, at Christ's baptism, at his, uh, where we have the transfiguration, what, what does the Father do? He pronounces that blessing upon his Son, the Son with whom he is well pleased. And so Christ being in this exalted position is a Father saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. I'm, I'm proud of this child for what he has done. My Son has overcome so this statement here is testifying to the enthronement and success of Christ. The Father's not just tolerating him. Christ has done the work that is set out for him. Now notice the nature of this rule. When we think of Psalm 2 as one of the introductory psalms to the Psalter, nations rising up, nations being the busy bees or the little ants on this earth, trying to conspire against God and thinking that they're, you know, going to overcome him and the Father or God looking down and saying they're nothing. Notice here, this is echoed. 
But instead of having the distraction of the busy bees or the little ants on, on the earth, we have here the reminder, I make your enemies a footstool. Now this footstool, we, we know this in our context. There's, there's nothing radical here. This is a place where you rest your feet. Nothing threatening about a footstool. Uh, after a hard day's work, it's nice to put your feet up and to put them on a footstool. The footstool is a place of rest. So when this language is used that I make your enemies a footstool, these enemies, I think that they're going to rise up against the living God and be mighty and overcome the great Christ. They're merely a footstool. That's what the Father is saying. This is merely a place where you rest your feet upon them. You know, we can think of a potential echo back to Genesis 3.15 of, of Christ trampling the head of the serpent. Uh, the serpent thinks he's mighty, thinks he's going to rise against the Lord, but he's ultimately nothing. And so this, this promise of, of who the Lord is, he is mighty, he rules over all. Skipping down then again, uh, verse 2, why I wanted to do our call to worship from Hebrews 12, because we can think Mount Zion, Jerusalem, something only for Israel. But this is where Hebrews is putting us on our sojourn. We're called to Mount Zion. When we're called into the presence of God, we assemble at Mount Zion with the testimony of the saints who have arrived. We're experiencing that, that heavenly worship with them. We should see ourselves united with these saints in the same Christ by the same Spirit. So with Christ being there seated in Zion, a place of rest, his glorious temple, his glorious mountain, notice what's here. His mighty, his mighty scepter. He rules in the midst of his enemies. So this does tell us something. That as he rules in the midst of our enemies, it doesn't mean we're in the ultimate victory. So of course we can go through life and we can say, why does it seem that the nations rage? Why does it seem that the people still mock the church? Why does it seem we don't have the victory that we want to have? Well, here we have the answer in verse 2. He rules in the midst of his enemies. In other words, his enemies aren't completely put down as a footstool. They're still around, still trying to stir up trouble, still trying to rebel against God, still trying to make a mockery of his name. But the place where we put our hope is we dwell on Mount Zion. This is a place of our orientation. The mighty scepter of our God testifies that the enthronement of Christ is certain and sure. He rules in the midst of his enemies. Even as our eyes may doubt it, even as we may not think this is real, the reality is Christ is ruling in the midst of everything we see, no matter what we read in the news, no matter what we may think. Our minds, our focus, our orientation has to turn back to these first two verses. Our Lord rules in the midst of his enemies. They will not prevail. They will be ultimately a footstool at some point. And so right here we have the assurance of the victory of Christ. And somebody says, why is it important he's seated in heaven? Testifies to the reality that he has overcome and has done what the Father has set out for him to do he is triumphant, even as we may not see it uh, in the way that we would always like to see it in history. It ebbs and flows. Uh, but the reality is he rules in the midst of his enemies. He has overcome. But the Catechism goes on to say with Christ 
Seated on the right hand of the Father, he rules us. Now, as we hear that, we may say, well, is this really something we want? I mean, we think of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Think of Hitler, think of Mussolini. You think of these types of figures in history. When, when all authority is given to them, it usually doesn't end very well for the citizens. In fact, it's, it's quite tyrannical. Maybe not for everyone, but there's generally someone who experiences a, the, the short end of that deal. And so we, we hear this, and this may kind of take us back a little bit. It may say, whoa, I, I don't know if I want this Lord to rule me. But let's see what, what this means, what, what, what this is telling us and teaching us. The Catechism wants us to understand that he's the one who rules us, basically through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are those who are joined to Christ, made alive in Christ, uh, the blessing of faith. Uh, he defends us. So unlike the other rulers who tax their citizens to death, exploit their citizens, uh, make it a burden to serve them, here we have this declaration, he defends us. Comes our aid. And we think of the covenant of grace. What does he say to Abram? Abram, I am your shield and defender. So right there at the beginning, you, you have this wonderful statement. Wow, this king's not telling me about all the things I have to do for him, like the kings of this age, in order to appease him. He's coming to me saying, I am your defender. I am your shield. I will lead you. So, so we have to remember this. And then we have the catechism saying he's the one who rules over us. So what this is telling us is we're not going to be indifferent to who we are in Christ. And as we hear this, we, we still may not be clear in what the catechism is saying. Because when the catechism says this, we still might be a little uneasy. Saying, I, I don't know if I want this mighty ruler with a scepter in heaven ruling over me. How, how do I know this is a good thing? This is where we turn back to Psalm 110. Because we have there in verse 2, what I've mentioned, your mighty scepter. So a scepter is something that testifies to the kingship of an individual. And if he rules in the midst of his enemies, it means the enemies can't rise up against him. He's all-powerful. He is sovereign. There's no doubt of this. You're not going to rise up and be victorious over this king. But notice then, as David writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because if we stopped at verse 2, that, that question would never be answered. Is he a tyrant? Is this a God I want to serve? Is this something I, I want to be frightened of? But we find in verse 3, your people, notice here, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Think about that declaration. This statement of offering ourselves freely makes an echo, uh, potentially, and I argue to, to Deborah and Barak's song as a write in Judges 5, verse 2. Praise to God that your people offered themselves freely unto you. This language that the Apostle Paul borrows in Romans 12, 1. That we live as living sacrifices unto God, freely offering ourselves unto him is the intention of of what Paul has there. And so what this means is that with the rulers of this age, what, what happens? I mean, yes, people may, in a sense, freely offer themselves in the sense that you choose to serve the king. Now, keep in mind, what, what does that mean? Well, you're going into the city gates. You see people hung upon a cross. 
You have the Assyrians where you have people outside the city impaled on sticks. Um, you can have different examples in, in history where, as we mentioned, with, with the triumphal procession of a king dragging another king behind a chariot to his death, you know, and that's the triumphal procession of celebrating the victory. So yeah, you can think about those things in a sense you're choosing to follow the king because you know the alternative. It's been published. It's, it's out there. You say, whoa, I, I really don't want to end up on a stick. I don't want to end up crucified. I don't want to be drugged behind a chariot. You know what? I, I think I'll just put up with the king and I'll, I'll just go along with it. So that's not really freely offering yourself. That's considering and weighing the options and understanding it's far better to put up with the tyranny of the king and have a bit of a life or at least a semblance of a life versus ending up on a stick, to be rather blunt. But here we have the, the language in the Hebrew is that we love this king so much that we want to offer ourselves. He's not coming to us with a scepter whacking someone in front of us and go, whoa, I don't want that scepter coming against me. But we actually look at this king and say, no, the king is gracious, the king is merciful, the king is the one who calls me to serve him, and I want to serve him. So his mighty scepter is not sitting there or, or being presented to us as an instrument of intimidation, but it's an instrument of safety. Like Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's what the scepter is. We look at this king, we say, here is a gracious king who has called me, who has secured me, who has redeemed me. I want to offer myself unto him and bring him the best that I can bring him by his grace and mercy because he is a gracious and good king. His scepter is there to protect me. It is not tyrannical. And so when, when we have this, what, what do we have? Well, he's the one who does this in, in holy garments. So now you, you have this presentation in Hebrew text that it could be the holy garments of the king, which means really he's the only righteous one who's fit to enter into heaven. But it's also the holy garments investments that he has secured and given to us. We receive new clothing from this king. So this is so contrary to what you have in the kings of tyranny. When Israel wants a king, What's the warning? What, what, what's the warning that's given to them? Listen, Samuel says, you, you get a king, he's going to send your sons into war, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to tax you. Do you really want this? I mean, there's a lot of things when you say, we want a king like the nations, that's going to cost you. I don't think you really want that. I think you want God as your king, right? And that's what we find in the history of Israel. These things happen just like the other nations. But here we have this presentation that the king actually defends us, gives us life, and gives us clothing. This is a king who perfects us. And so we can understand why we want to serve him. Notice how it goes on, where we have, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now the point of this is not just celebrating youth. It's not contradicting what you have in Proverbs, that the gray hair is something that communicates wisdom, and, and you want to actually listen to the gray-haired individuals. Uh, they've been through a few seasons in life. They've experienced some things. 
You, you want to uh, cherish what they have to tell you about their experience. They're, they're seasoned. This is not celebrating youth. What this is telling us is that this king continually has the power and the energy to defend. He does not get weary. He does not get burned out. He does not need a sabbatical. You, you can continually call upon this king, and this king is going to continually be the one who gives life. His service is true. The consecration that he gives is certain. This is the life and the new life that he ultimately gives to us. So it's not just him, but again, it's communicating that new life that we possess in him. So right here we say, okay, so we understand we want to serve this king because he gives us new life. He transforms us. He defends us. He's a true benevolent king who loves his people. And so when Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father, this is a certainty that our life is guaranteed in him. But notice then the catechism goes on to tell us something else and teach us something else that parallels a psalm. He makes everything right. Now again, this, this sounds like a political campaign, doesn't it? You know, vote for me, I'll make all your wildest dreams come true, sort of thing. But the reality is the catechism is pointing out to us that we can dread our future. Now, maybe not so much in America, but you can think of other places in history. You think of Rome, uh, with some of the extreme persecutions of potentially being fed to animals uh, for depraved entertainment. You can dread that future. What's going to become of me? What's going to become of my family? Right? And you can understand that. But here is the understanding that as we're set apart in Christ, and as that horrible fate may happen, and I'm not saying America's going there, but as putting it ourselves in the context of Rome, that fate was real, right? That, that wasn't a hypothetical, uh, this could potentially happen sort of thing. Where's the ultimate comfort? The comfort is knowing that as we're grounded in Christ, we're grounded at Mount Zion. That's where the Psalms beginning. This is where the catechism's inviting our mind to go. Things may not always work out for us. Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. It means they're still enemies. But what this tells us in the catechism is our enemies and Christ's enemies, as we are joined to Christ, become one. So it's not like we're alone. It's not like Christ being our king is indifferent to our fate. Christ as our king assures us, I will make it all right. You will dwell with me in glory. You will experience the blessings of what I have secured, and I will defend you until the end. And so how do we know this isn't some uh, cheesy or, or sloppy campaign slogan? So where we turn to the psalm again. We think about the psalm and we understand who Christ is. These kings with whom he rules in the midst of them, he, he rules over them. But notice as we go on in verse 5, as he's at the right hand of God, we have this assurance he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It's not just enemies, and, and enemies is certainly included in this. But the point of the kings is kings command armies. Kings rule over empires. Kings have people who do their bidding at their command. 
So when kings have these resources, kings can think, there is nobody that's going to rise above me. I mean, we've seen this in the history of the world. We think of someone like Nebuchadnezzar, or we think of Pharaoh, or we think of these other rulers who think that they are so big and so mighty that they're untouchable. But the reality is, verse 5 is saying, listen, this enthronement of Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies, the promise of making the enemies a footstool, Verse 5 is saying this will be visible. His day of wrath is coming. In his day of wrath, he will carry out his plan. No king is going to rise above him. We notice then in verse 6 where we say, well, maybe this is just a reference back to the Exodus. Maybe this is just a reference back to the exile. And he's just talking about bringing Israel out of a foreign land. No, no. He executes judgment among the nations. This is international. This is Gog and Magog of the nations coming out to rise against the Lord at the battle of Armageddon, the final battle, and saying, we're going to overcome this mighty one. It's, it's the Tower of, of, of Babel, um, you know, 2.0 on steroids. The Tower of Babel, we're going to permeate and penetrate into heaven We're going to overcome this God. We're going to bring him down. The assurance is the life of the Christian is not just a life of suffering. It's not just a life where we just go through it, we embrace our fate, and that's it. It's understanding that as we take hold of Christ by faith, it is not going to end in disappointment. He's going to shatter kings. He's going to fill the the world with corpses. This is a very visible presentation of the victory of what he has overcome. It's going to be over the whole earth. And so the making of his enemies a footstool, trampling of the kings, his ruling in the midst of them is saying, listen, I will defend my church. I will act on the day of my judgment and it will come to pass and it will be visible. It will be swift. And these kings will learn real quick who's in charge. Now, when we hear that, we say, wow, that's quite a remarkable thing. But then we go to verse 7. And we have this strange verse at the end of this psalm where all of a sudden it says, and he will drink by the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And, And you sort of read that and you say, wait a minute, didn't you just say you're going to overcome, you're going to overpower, you have a a mighty scepter, your enthronement is in heaven. And yet we we have this language of him drinking from the brook and then he's going to lift up his head. Like, what does this mean and how does this fit with the psalm? Well, this is where we go to the beginning and we look at what this verse means. Notice I conveniently skipped over a very important statement in the psalm. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, when we go through this, we have an identification of who wrote the psalm. Uh, Not only in terms of the psalm, not only in terms of the title that's there before us, but Mark 12, verse 36, identifies David, citing the psalm as the one who ascended into heaven, and David as the author. Acts 2, verse 34 to 35, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he cites this, attributes it to David. And then calls their attention, isn't David who fulfilled this? Another example, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, where again, we have that enthronement of Christ. 
David as the one who, uh, or, or the ultimate enthronement and trampling of the enemies. And there's multiple citations of this in Hebrews. And as I mentioned, arguably the most cited psalm in the New Testament. But the importance of identifying this as David. David, in a lot of ways, was the ideal king of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. We're familiar with the story of David matching up against Goliath and showing again the courage of this young shepherd boy that by the grace of God he overcomes. So we see him as this holy warrior, this, this figure who overcomes in terms of showing on the one hand, the power of God that, that overcomes all the enemies of Israel in the ideal state. And then we have David also as the one who's not giving credit to himself. The Lord says to my Lord. In other words, David is not seeing himself as a fulfillment of this psalm. He's not saying, I'm the guy who's seated on the throne, slain the tens of thousands, I'm the Messiah. No, David's saying, I'm not the fulfillment of this. I'm looking ahead. And that's Peter's point in the Pentecost sermon. And so the, the point of this is this is pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to Christ and calling our attention to what he has done. So what is verse 7 then? As David is the one who says this, we know there's a victory. But we also have then this, this echo in verse 7 that recalls for us thirst. It recalls for us someone who is in pursuit, is tired, weary, and needs refreshment. Uh, an echo here, many commentators say, goes back to Gideon in Judges 8 verse 4, where Gideon with the 300 men pursue, and they pursue through the Jordan. Uh, they're fatigued, they're tired, uh, but yet they pursue and they continue on. There's language here that certainly echoes that. We can also think of things that even David himself has said. We think of David as one who cries out to God as a deer, you know, pants for water so my soul thirsts after you. Again, that, that longing for fulfillment, that longing for refreshment. Uh, we think of David fleeing from Absalom, being in the wilderness, and how he thirsts uh, for the Lord as, as in a barren land. David uses this language. But we think also of water, not only in terms of refreshment, but water in terms of death. Uh, we are familiar, of course, with the flood. We think of Job in Job 38, verse 18, of how the Lord uh, comes to him and asks him if he's the one who's been to the depths of the sea. And this, of course, is in the context of Job himself in chapter 7, verse 9, wishing for death. You know, wanting to go to the belly of Sheol, which uh, in the Hebrew mind was the belly of the sea, going to the realm of the dead, to the bottom of the nothingness or the abyss. And so we, we can think of death, we can think of the Red Sea, you know, these sorts of things that we're familiar with. We also think of this being life, David panting, desiring for this water, as we've already mentioned. But another thing that, that we've forgotten or we didn't call to our attention, is we think of the river of life or the water of life. We think of Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, of the water rushing in. We think of that being echoed in Revelation 22, of the river of life proceeding from the throne of the Lamb. 
And so what is this verse 7 telling us? Well, verse 7 is communicating to us the reality of this messianic mission. That there is the assurance of this enthronement. David himself is looking to the glorified Christ seated on the right hand of the Father. David is giving the assurance that this Messiah is the one who will bring about the ultimate triumphant judgment. He will make all things right. He will judge the nations. He will bring his people into the rest that he has promised. But how does he do it? He does it with that language of the holy war uh, pursuit of going into the wilderness, going down into the belly of the sea, experiencing the fatigue of war and experiencing the ultimate victory because as he drinks from the brook, he lifts his head and he orients himself to heaven. So what is this brook? What is this water? When we think about, as I've mentioned, that vision in Ezekiel, 47 of the river rushing into the temple. We think of the river of life. That here is that mind-boggling presentation of how the Spirit nourishes Christ in the midst of his ministry. Of how the, the Spirit is the one who picks him up. So as the Catechism says, the Father rules through Christ. We, we see that working. We know how the Holy Spirit and the Father have raised Christ from the dead we know that when the Spirit descends upon Christ, equipping him for his mission, that we see the Trinity working in this. And so when, when Christ, as it's presented here in verse 7 of taking a drink from the brook, it's not where we look in the Gospels and say, well, where's the literal reference to this where Christ kneels down to drink from the brook? It's calling to our attention the river of life that comes from heaven from the Spirit itself. And it's the assurance that in the midst of this, Christ's face and orientation was always tuned into the purpose of the Father and tuned into the orientation of heaven itself. So when we say, well then, what does this fundamentally mean for us? And, and how does this fundamentally apply to us? See, the temptation we can have when we hear that the Spirit is poured out or we hear of the one-time Pentecost event the outpouring of the Spirit, the tongues of fire, this baptism, fire, water, you know, these themes that we find in Scripture. We can think, well, what does that really do? How does that really nourish me? Well, we find that we are partaking of the same life and power that has equipped Christ to fulfill His mission. The difference is we are those who are garnished and, and covered in, in the clothing that Christ has won for us. It is Christ who has gone before us to do this very thing. So as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, it's testifying to the reality that as Christ has overcome, we will overcome. Not because Christ is an example, but because Christ has overcome on our behalf. As we are dressed and garnished with the heavenly armor, this is the armor that comes from heaven itself that the Father has placed upon us. As we are heavenly warriors, we may think, well, what about the Goliaths? What about the big things that we face? We, we don't have the giants literally like David. Well, the reality is that as we continue to struggle through this life, orienting ourselves in light of heaven, orienting ourselves in light of who we are in Christ, orienting ourselves knowing that we are grounded and rooted in Christ Jesus, as we fight the good fight 
in our Christian life against sin, seeking to conform to our God, this is what we are called to do as his heavenly warriors, bringing glory to his name first and foremost within our own lives, seeking to conform to him, living out of gratitude. And as we do this, as his redeemed, as those who sojourn through this world, ideally we leave this world, this place, a better place than when we found it seeking to honor our God, doing this for his honor and glory, conscious that this is who we are as his redeemed, as those who have overcome in the mighty ruler who is seated in the glory of heaven, holding his glorious scepter and empowering us in his spirit. And so when we ask that question, then how do we really know Christ is going to overcome? How do we really know Christ seated in heaven is such a good thing? We know this because Christ is one as this psalm is teaching us. He's not overcoming just for drama. He's not overcoming just to show he can overcome. He's overcoming assuring us that what we see before us, it's easy to be distracted by our eyes and to doubt that the Lord really is ruling at times. But the assurance is that as Christ is seated in heaven holding the mighty scepter, he's saying, I have overcome. That is the assurance of this. He rules in the midst of our enemies, even as we may doubt it, and we may not see it as we desire it. The assurance from Psalm 110, he is ruling. And as he is ruling, he is giving us the assurance that when he comes again, he's going to make all things right. The end of this psalm is much like what we heard this morning from Hebrews. He is the one who knows the dryness, the bitterness, the testing of the wilderness. And where does he find his refreshment? In the life-giving spirit that he becomes, that he pours out at his resurrection, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So let us not be like the woman at the well when Christ interacts with her who just wants water that provides temporary refreshment to thirst. What does Christ call her to long for? The heavenly water, the eternal water, experiencing the drink from the true fountain of life. This is the thirst, or this is the water that quenches the thirst of the soul. Let us walk in that power, freely offering ourselves out of gratitude as living sacrifices unto our God, under his reign, under his sovereignty, as his redeemed people, conscious of this heavenly calling. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, Please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Mm-hmm.